Hello and welcome to the Video Lab podcast. My name is Sam and I'm here with my good friend AJ. Hey there. Together we review movies, TV shows, and streaming content. On today's show, we have uh, our first repeat appearance, uh, Bryce. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking shut up. I know it was awkward. Today we have our first repeat appearance, Bryce. (laughs) Was it it, it bad or did it just sound funny? You just got to loosen up a little bit. I Yeah. All right. All right. I was thinking too much. (laughs) All right. On today's show, we have our first repeat guest, Bryce. Hello. (laughs) Perfect. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. What is it you want, Barry? You you want the moon? I want the truth! I see dead people. You shall not pass! You'll shoot your eye out, kid. This is Sparta! I am your father. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us all unite! After losing everything in the Great Recession, a woman embarks on a journey through the American West, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Finding bits and pieces, all worth their reach, I'll carry it on. When summer in the line, I followed my eyes and went alone. All right, I got a pop filter this time, aka a sock over my microphone. So hopefully my puzz don't sound as puh. Oh, did it did it sound like that in our other recording? Yeah. So oh, okay. quick test. Yeah, you sound you sound good. Is that pop? It's a normal amount of popping. It's the good kind of popping. It's like early two thousands Taylor Swift pop. <laughs> it's like a Mountain Dew, but you know, not a nasty code red, just like a a solid one on the rocks. Like an OG Mountain Dew? Yeah, slightly watered down out of the can. Oh, yeah. It's very important because Mountain Dew by itself is almost just poison. And I say that as a mountain connoisseur. <laughs> it is pretty gross. Like it's It's got like 195 grams of sugar, I think, per can. Not as much as Fanta, surprisingly. Really? Oh, yeah. And you don't even get any caffeine for it. It's just bad. It's a fucking ripoff. Yeah. So when are you guys going to have me on for a movie that like fucking sucks? Fear not. For, for the next movie we have you on, it will be a trash movie you can just piss on. Okay, awesome. Not a me- mediocre one, though. Mediocre is the worst. So you want you want piss, but not, not like Green Book? Horribly terrible. Just not like boring bad. Okay. Just like just bad enough that it really pisses me off. Where it's like trying not to be bad, but it is. Yeah. Because, like, any dumpster fire just becomes funny. I want to be mad. I want to be just deeply upset. <laughs> uh, Sam, do you do you want to do a segue? You, yeah, I'm trying to figure out at- how to do a segue from this. <laughs> Sam's thing is, like, there's, like, chit-chat in the beginning, and then he finds a segue of, like... <laughs> Yeah. To the to the movie. I don't know. I'm playing into it. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah. I'm giving you plenty of opening material before the first like trailer noise goes off. You know what uh 
also makes me angry <laughs> is when you have to work in a factory like Amazon. Is the economic recession of 2008. <laughs> yeah. There's your segue. Hey, bada bing, bada boom, bada ba. Another Smith lyric I have is when you're laughing and dancing and finally living, you hear my voice in your head and think of me kindly. And then also, the one that means the most to me is home, is it just a word or is it something that you carry within you? Right. So, yeah, we like that. I like that one. All right, so what did you guys think about Nomadland? <laughs> wow, that your heart was not in that transition. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what did you guys think about Nomadland? It reminds me of a Patton Oswalt skit. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about, but I can't remember what it is. It's, it's the magician one. Yes, it with... is. It's the magician one. <laughs> That's the voice Sam just you gave. You see the ball? Okay, ball's gone. Bada boom. <laughs> See the rabbit? Now you don't. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> now, is this out. one of those skits where there's a, a bad magician up front and he's telling jokes that obviously aren't funny, but there's a very butch lesbian in the back row <laughs> who's just cackling? And all I'm saying is if it is, I've seen it done better. <laughs> 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 that was a good almost verbatim line of that. Bit. I watched that special way too many times in senior year of college. Anyway, Nomadland. <laughs> we like <laughs> describe the movie. It won't take long. You can summarize it in like two sentences. Nomadland is based on a nonfiction book that came out, I think, sometime in the aughts. That was just talking about these like old people that after the recession lost everything and just took to like living out of RVs. So this is kind of an adaptation of that nonfiction into a fictional story. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's pretty good. <laughs> so Frances McDormand, after losing like literally everything in her life, the town that she lived in doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, she goes on somewhat of a spiritual journey to try and figure out what the hell to do next. And that puts her into living in a van, basically being homeless and just vibing with a bunch of old people who also got totally fucked over in roughly 2008. That's a great synopsis. And I, I hope the Oscars use that as a, as a line. You know, there's still time. There's still time. Yeah, I was trying to, <laughs> on a heavier note, I guess, try to figure out a funny segue into this movie, but it's such a, such an emotional and intense movie, but yet subtle. It's hard to come up with like a witty way into it. Uh, I, I suppose it's not easy to segue into like a very... It, not a lot of, of this movie is humorous in a, in a very ha-ha way. More of a... Uh, dark way. <laughs> I don't. I won't even call it humorous. Like three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, is humorous. This is just. This is almost post-apocalyptic. Yeah, it, you know, I almost had a yeah, the, uh, like a almost like a steampunky, apocalyptic steampunk ethos. What? Not steampunk. I'm sorry, steampunk is not the right things. word. <laughs> the, but you, the the vibe that you were just discussing is the what I'm trying to get at. Okay, of, of the end times sort of mentality the way i describe this movie is incredibly melancholic 
like um the there's a really good piano track that goes throughout the most of the movie and it's it's just very it's a very low grade sadness at all times Yeah, and it's usually accompanied by like a single violin that goes with it. That just kind of, that's like the only non-diegetic piece in the movie, I think. Mm -hmm. And you hear it a few times. Yeah, it's a short soundtrack. And um, yeah, they're very, all very somber pieces for the most part. Yeah. And it does actually play into it in the end when she starts performing it on the piano. Yeah, right. two things that stuck out really uh, big to me when I watched this was the cinematography was like amazing. All the landscape shots that they got at early morning or late evening sunrise and sunset and the way they framed up those shots was really, I thought, breathtaking. Yeah. And just like the really like super ultra wide lenses to just take in as much as possible. And they just let the film breathe, too. They don't have crazy sound effects or, like you guys said, the music track isn't super big or crazy. It lets it just breathe and you take in the different uh, beauty of the shots that they created in this. Most of the music that shows up is like entirely diegetic. It's people strumming on guitars. It's, you know, around the campfire. It's country songs that are being performed live at a bar. Hey, hey, how about a drink? How about a toast to our friends? Not the friends you're going to see every day, no. Instead, we're going to drink to the friends who had to go away. I bet you know just who I mean. The friends who had to depart. The friends in our heart. Did that piano guy like freak you guys out at all when you saw him for the first time with the top hat? He was, he was interesting. I, his song was like an incredible level of dark that I, (laughs) it's on the soundtrack and it's haunting. (laughs) When he first showed up, I'll be honest. I was like, why is this incredibly Hasidic looking guy suddenly (laughs) in the movie? Like it just comes to him like a comedy shot. Yeah. Besides him, I the other thing that stuck out to me was how believable all the characters were in this. It legitimately felt like they plucked people out of real life, and maybe they were, that are just regular people. They did, yeah. The actors' names are the exact same as the characters they played. Yep. Including uh, Swanky. That is her name. That's amazing. And it felt like a good break from a typical Hollywood-type movie or even an indie movie to some level where it has quote unquote professional actors. All these like people felt real and they felt the stories felt real and they're the way they talked. Like, you know, it wasn't perfect written out sentences. They had uhs and ums and weird kind of pauses in there. Right. They were real people. And um, yeah, there's only two professional actors in this whole movie and that's 
Fern and um, Dave, uh, but everyone else is playing dramatized versions of themselves and their own stories. So when they're talking about these heartbreaking stories, that's that's their lived experience. And it's yeah, it's incredibly moving stuff. And it 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 does feel very raw and real like that for that reason. And I think, you know, the landscape shots and also like the Foley plays into it as well, because if you're just listening to like the footsteps and the, you know, mechanical tinkerings and the sound of rain, it all is so crisp and clear as well that it really sells like this kind of gritty uh, reality. Yeah, a gritty natural world. The nature plays a big role in the film, even though it's, you know, I mean, we only, we, yeah, it's, it's a natural deserts and, and trees. And it's a very, I know I thought this was an apt movie, Sam, because we, we've reviewed, um, soul and sound of metal where, you know, the movies about sound. sensations <laughs> yeah. and sound and sure. Yeah. Just like simple sensations and, and pleasures. And I thought this was a, a natural kind of follow up into that because this movie focuses a lot on that natural beauty. And that's why a lot of these people have chosen this lifestyle is, is part of that is, you know, to be in, in touch with nature more. Part of why I see it as like post-apocalyptic though, or at least with that vibe is because the the nature isn't really glamorized at all. If anything, when they're describing, oh, I want to be out in the, the wild, it feels more like a coping mechanism because it's just they're, like they're in the middle of the freaking desert, you know, and everyone's just probably covered in dirt and sweat and there aren't showers. And it's just they're just living in like a, a hellscape, you know. But what does that say about what they want compared to as, you know, okay, so they're in this setting now in the wilderness, which they want to be in versus what their old lives were, where a lot of them just, you know, going to job, day-to-day job, but then they got screwed over by the sickness and then their government slash job screwed them over or something else tragic happened in their life where, you know, nothing was really set up in society to help take care of them. And they got screwed over. They're like, well, screw that. I'm going to come and just enjoy my life and what <laughs> what is out here in the world that's where the bleakness to me comes in is that you've got i mean it's all old people because it's focused on you know these people that have worked hard physical blue collar jobs their whole lives and then right when they're about to retire everything gets ripped out from under them for a lot of people, it's medical bills. Other people, it's someone in their family died and they just can't stick around anymore. People lose their homes. They like get entirely like screwed over by the established systems that were supposed to keep them safe. Like they mentioned at one point, um, one of the ladies, as she's retiring, is going to get 500 bucks a month for social security after working since she was 12. And it's just like, that's nothing. That's not enough to even like eat healthily, let alone make a mortgage payment or like live at all. So I almost see it as like after they lost everything, it's so bleak because then they have to go and live like this because the alternative is just, I don't know, you're on the street. So they're stuck in just this calling it purgatory would be too nice. You know, it's, 
it's worse than that. They aren't even like given the dignity of death. They're just like stuck wasting away their golden years because there's just nothing. And they have to convince themselves that this is that this is good, that this is like something they can still, you know, benefit from or enjoy. But you look at the actual conditions that they live in and how they still continue to get screwed over by lack of money, how even when they're trying to live free, they still have to work these incredibly degrading and menial jobs. Fern is cleaning vomit off of toilets and grabbing like shit stained underwear out of the park. And after like a whole life of working hard, you'd think you could have something better, but no, I think the, the, the baseline of this film is very much in, in line with the book where it's the aftermath of the 08 financial crisis. And so I actually went into this assuming it was going to be much more explicitly geared towards, you know, old decaying industrial towns and people just being driven into homelessness because of, um, you know, all the stuff that you were just talking about, Bryce, and, and just economic calamity. And so I was expecting almost entirely that angle. But I, I think what's more interesting about this film is that that is not the exclusive angle with which these people are pursuing that lifestyle. There's the people that are falling, that have fallen on hard times, but there's also the people, you know, that uh, there was that one lady who said uh, her coworker, you know, died like two weeks after retirement and she didn't want to be a workhorse put out to pasture. Yeah. Or, um, the other person who said, um, I worked for corporate America, you know, for 20 years. And my friend Bill worked for the same company. He had liver failure a week before he was due to retire. HR called him in hospice and said, you know, let's talk about your retirement. And he died 10 days later, having never been able to take that sailboat that he he bought out of his driveway and he missed out on everything and he told me before he died just don't waste any time bro don't waste any time so i retired as soon as i could i didn't want my sailboat to be in the driveway when i died yeah, and I guess the the workhorse line was from um, the main uh, camper. I thought you were going to say it was from Animal Farm because it, <laughs> it's kind of it like the been. horse in that. Like he works his hardest his whole life and then he just gets fucked over and turned into glue in the end. Yeah. In a way, it's like a subtle criticism of, you know, the capitalist system that put everyone in this situation. It's never explicit about it, but. Right. And I think that's what's so interesting is is there's a ton of different things that this is critiquing and putting a lens towards without being terribly explicitly about one thing in particular. Like um, there are certain characters that are pursuing this because they want to to feel a sense of freedom and to be in, you know, have a sense of independence and. Um, and want to live the lifestyle. I think a good example of this is actual Wisconsin native who, I don't know if you guys remember the guy with the cowboy hat who bummed a cigarette from Fern. Yeah. Uh, he's from Wanakee, Wisconsin. I read this uh, article on the state journal about him. He graduated high school in Wanakee in 16 
And then he just hopped a rail. I mean, despite having a family, uh, he just hopped a rail and it just lives as a nomad. Uh, not because of any destituteness. It's just because he does that to be free and he can't stay in one spot. Fern is also a good capturing of that too, because she has tons of opportunities to stay with other people. She's offered shelter by Dave, her sister, uh, family, friends. To me, I viewed her specifically, and you can find a bunch of different stories in different veins, but her inability to feel at home anywhere, I think is very much due to the loss of her husband, who she finds it difficult to find anywhere that's home after uh, Empire Nevada because he's not there. She feels heartbreak and and loss, and she is trying to find peace in a simpler lifestyle. And I think a lot of these people fall into that camp rather than just exclusively all these people have been fucked over, you know, because there definitely are those people. I can't imagine what you're going through, the loss of your husband and the loss of your whole town and friends and village and that kind of kind of loss is never easy and uh, I wish I had an easy answer for you but I think you've come to the right place to find an answer I think that I think connecting to nature and and uh, to a real true community and tribe will make all the difference for you I hope so I mean, I might be pushing it a little too hard because I do agree. No, but I like, but I think you're right, though, because I because I, those themes about capitalism and work and labor and dying with dignity, those are all in there. But it was so interesting is this is so much more of a kaleidoscope of different things. Right. And that's what I want to say. It isn't just like this negative perspective of everything. It is like it does show other perspectives, like the people who seem to actually enjoy this life usually are like younger ones that are depicted and they're more yeah. wandering. Um, there's also like a big motive, it seemed, of people with dogs being depicted as happier, you know, like dogs show up so much in this movie. Yeah, I really liked that. I think one of the most powerful images you talked about, AJ, where it shows Fern trying to decide whether or not she wants to settle down with David when they go to David's son's house was when she is physically divided with her van between the van and David's house by the fence. If you guys remember that shot. Yep. Yeah, that was a really good shot. I was thinking you were going to say when she's just sitting at that dinner table all by herself, staring out the window. Or that, yeah. And it's just dead silence. You can almost hear how uncomfortable she is. She, she's physically uncomfortable sleeping in a bed and under being under that roof. Doesn't it say a lot, too, how we keep going back to these blue-collar jobs to survive into the wilderness? And we have these varying levels of even freedom in the wilderness where we have the really fancy RVs. They even go to, like, a fancy RV show. And... uh you know, for these certain sect of society that are trying to live this freestyle life, they have to keep, <laughs> like Bryce said, thriving by working in between all these different areas. Yeah, that was like the biggest, I don't know, heartbreak of it all is even in like selling everything they had left, even in abandoning, you know, homes that they've had their whole lives and towns they've lived in and worked in they still are victim to having to make money somehow, no matter what community they build, no matter what generosity is there. 
they have to have money. When um, Fern's van breaks down and she needs like 2,500 bucks and she just doesn't have it. It just grounds everything and like, oh, you can't escape no matter how much you want to. I will play devil's advocate, though, and say, I think one other theme in this movie is it's trying to convey how caught up in cycles or like uh, a normal routine we can get in sometimes. And that routine is is represented in seeing Fern or other people do all these different jobs like at the or end of the day going back to amazon every yeah, like holiday even season though she could go somewhere else or stay with her family and stuff she likes the consistency to some level of different work or work in general to keep her mind busy from you know partially away from the loss of her husband but also just because it's, she's been doing it her whole life right it's hard to break away what i get most from her is she really has a lot of pride and independence and she doesn't want to be dependent on other people. And she likes living a free lifestyle, even if that means she is markedly more destitute than she would be if she just stayed with her sister. Are you still doing the van thing? Yeah. I'm parked over at the Desert Rose RV park. Oh, we just drove by there today. Didn't we girls? How's your mom? She's wonderful. She misses you a, a lot. Please tell her I miss her today. I will. I will. But really, Fern, if, if you need a place to stay, you can come over and stay with us. We're worried about you. Thanks. Don't worry about me. I'll let you know. I promise. Okay. See you, Aubrey. Bye. You hear about that, too. And people who, once they retire, they, you know, they go insane almost because they don't have, they don't know what to do or whatever to keep right. busy. They don't have enough hobbies or they don't have a plan for what's next. They just think, oh, I'm going to retire. It'll be great. And then there's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, so many of my hobbies focus around just like, being in a comfy place, having lots of media to just cram into my eye holes and ear holes, you know. So when I just see the stills of these people just like sitting on their, you know, folding chair and just looking aimlessly at like a over the horizon while they're like eating a can of beans, to me, that's like the worst possible like <laughs> end result for my golden years, you know? So maybe other people would see it as more freeing, but to me, there's no glamor associated with that. Yeah. I think the, a lot of these people do enjoy a slower lifestyle. Uh, there was a, there was a vet. I remember who a veteran who said that he, he had PTSD and he couldn't stand being a, around loud noises or people. And so that's part of his motivation. But a lot of these people, it, just seems are very content to just relax in in the wild, you know, with their dog or just sitting on a chair. Even the vet, though, it was like he was there because of like negative reinforcement, you know, like he couldn't choose to live in other places. He had to get away from all the sound. So whether he actually liked it or not was irrelevant. It was like the alternative was just hell for him. It is still the wilder the wilderness too, you know. At one point, when Fern's uh, van breaks down, like Bryce said, and gets a flat tire, her one friend is it Swanky or Linda? Uh, Swanky, uh, who tells her, you know, what are you doing? Like you, you know, you can die out here. This is the wilderness, the middle of the desert. It's not just a game. It's not just like, oh yeah, go out here and be free. You have to have a plan and know how to thrive. I actually thought her 
Swanky's uh, couple monologue bits were really good in the film with uh, her expressing both talking about the dignity of dying and also a appreciation and connection to nature and its healing qualities. Uh, she had this riff about, you know, um, kayaking all over and seeing moose and swallows and just really simple natural environments. And I, I think that's a, an ethos that that kind of pervades the film, both with characters and just the the lens of the camera itself, you know, with Fern walking around in nature, um, just an appreciation for it. She also sent that video to Fern. Was it after she ran away from Dave's family that she got that? Uh, I'm trying to remember I when in the movie it was. it was. Yeah, I think it was. Because she finally made it back to that place with all the, the swallows on a lake that she said she'd be perfectly happy dying in. And I didn't notice it at the moment, but I think that might've been like a turning point for Fern where she stopped being miserable about everything and did see some kind of opportunity for beauty. I'm going to be 75 this year. And I think I've lived a pretty good life. I've seen some really neat things, kayaking, all those places. And you know, like, like moose in the wild, a moose family on a river in Idaho and um, big white pelicans landing just six feet over my kayak on a lake in Colorado or um, um, come around a bend uh, with a cliff and find hundreds and hundreds of swallow nests on the, on the wall of the cliff and the swallows fall, flying all around. and reflecting in the water so it looks like I'm flying with the swallows and they're under me and over me and all around me and the little babies are hatching out and eggshells are falling out of the nest landing on the water and floating on the water these little white shells it's like it was just so awesome I felt like I'd, I'd done enough my life was complete if I died right right then that moment I'd be perfectly fine Because after that and her talk with um, the leader of the nomads, she like went out to the, the coastline and just relished in the waves and the rain and the, the actual natural place. And can I talk about that leader of the nomads? Yeah. What's his name? I can't remember. Yeah. His name is Bob Wells. I had to look this guy up because... His final performance, his final speech about his son was like incredible, like some of the most moving acting I have ever seen. I was like, who is this guy? Well, he's the guy who in real life founded this whole movement following the financial crisis of the living out of RVs and forming communities. So his actual name, Bob Wells. Um, he's depicting a version of himself. I don't like Wikipedia didn't say if he actually had a son or not that, you know, had that ex that went through what he did. But like, this is the guy. I, I rarely ever talk about my son. But uh, today would be today would be his 33rd birthday. And five years ago, he took his life. And I can still barely say that in a sentence. And, and for a long time, every day was, uh, the question was, uh, 
how can I be alive on this earth when he's not? And I didn't have an answer. And those were some hard, hard days. But <clears throat> I realized that I could honor him by helping people and serving people. It gives me a reason to go through the day. <laughs> some days that's all I've got. And out here, there's a lot of people our age, and inevitably there's grief and loss. And a lot of them don't get over it either. And that's okay. That's okay. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. You know, I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. I always just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. And uh, whether it's a month or a year or sometimes years, I see them again. And I can look down the road and I can be certain in my heart that I'll see my son again. Yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> uh... <clears throat> you know, <laughs> I was having a hard week because... Uh... Oh, it was the one year anniversary of my brother passing away. Oh, you know, I've been thinking, oh God, I just hope there's something <clears throat> after this life because it's just too hard to imagine never being able to see him again. And uh, I mean, it's like he said, they're, they're never, he doesn't like to say goodbye when he's on the road. He just says, we'll see you later. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I was watching this movie. Jess was sleeping next to me, and I just started crying, like bawling my eyes out when he said that and talking about losing his son to suicide. And I'm like, <laughs> well, if this isn't like some sign of, uh, you know, whatever, Lee or whoever, AJ or whoever, just trying to help me get through the week and just put me at ease a little bit. I thought that was such a beautiful, beautiful monologue that he did. It really is like such a powerful moment and he just presents it so well. It feels real to the point where even if it didn't happen, like you can tell he understands it and knows how to communicate it. I have a hard time believing that that wasn't a real story. I, it seemed very real. And given that the rest of the characters had, were dramatizing versions of the, themselves, I think that that tracks. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> this is such a, I like thought, kept thinking about the movie that night going to bed. And I don't know. This is one of those movies that, to me that I think is probably going to stick with me the rest of my life. It was such a moving. It did really come at just the, the exact timing, didn't it? And that was so unexpected at the end, too. I was trying to figure out if they're going to end the movie beyond that with like an open-ended like like open ending and i was gonna be initially i was gonna be angry like oh she's just gonna drive off or something even even though they had that i thought it worked well because they kind of tied a ribbon on at the end not only with bob's monologue between her and fern uh but with fern going back to her house and kind of accepting like okay i'm gonna have to you know I honor my husband by remembering him, but I have to also move on with my life. I can't get stuck in the past, basically. Right. No, absolutely. That's true. So it kind of gets the best of both worlds. 
that line she said to Bob at the end. What's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering Bob. (laughs) And then right after that, she goes to the garage or the storage locker that was the opening scene. And yeah, that's right. Gives it all up. Mm, Right. I also thought a good theme in amongst her, her traveling and being, you know, broken with the loss of her husband is, is this movie subtly reinforced the idea of grief without the expectation of resolution. Yeah. Um, That was also part of Bob's monologue was. Yeah. Right. Some of these people, they don't get better, but that's okay. No. And I thought that was good because it's a very standard trope uh, of a Hollywood film to be like something bad happened. And then one moment we're just going to be all better now. Yeah. Everything's all better. And I, I think that was, that's very, it's a very mature concept for a film and it would be, it's hard to pull that off without making the film too macabre. Yeah, sappy or one yeah, way or the it, other. It's a right. fine line. And, yeah, and this was a really good balance of, of of those concepts. I mean, it this movie just touches on so many different things between life and capitalism and labor and uh, nature. And I it just it's impressive the scope that this movie covers without needing to explicitly tag on those things. They're all just an underlying presence. I think it's just all that realism of people and their stories kind of builds together into that like wide swath of narratives where you can look at it and take what you want from it because there's so many experiences that you might empathize with or have shared with these people. And I think part of that pain being the focus on like seniors and older people kind of really sells that ending with Bob where he's saying, you know, sometimes you can't move on. So many of these people are dying from cancer or, you know, it's too late for them, but that's okay. Yeah. It's not something you just get over overnight either. when the grief process is just with you for a long time. Did you guys on a side note, I was trying to figure out, do they actually film in an Amazon warehouse? I was wondering that too, because I, I had a hard time believing Amazon was thrilled about that. I know, <laughs> like portraying your corporation as like a, I mean, honestly, a big heartless thing. <laughs> well, what's interesting is they re- she repeatedly mentioned that she was well paid doing it. And there wasn't anything explicitly negative about the Amazon experience. I think it's very much the American psyche, like us watching this, we realize like, oh, damn, she's working in an Amazon warehouse where, you know, we've people read have the news headlines. We've read the news headlines. Yeah. So I think that's there. And so I don't know. I, this seemed like a real factory. I think so it I don't was. Know, because so I don't know if, yeah, go They ahead. weren't explicitly negative about it at all from what I remember. Even when they were in the place, they were, you know, smiling and waving at each other and all the workers got along at lunch and... You know, they were paid well and it was reliable work and the, the factory looks super clean and organized. It's like we know in reality, people are like pissing into bottles because their tractors are saying, oh, you took too long of a break between packaging shit. 
Yeah, so this almost neutral visual of an Amazon warehouse seems like exciting PR for them. (laughs) I guess. I I think it'd be too expensive. I mean, for this being an almost an indie film, it has to have been real for budget purposes, I think. Well, the the alternative I was thinking is they could have just gone to a different factory. And just like reset it up. Yeah, or just like, you know, asked to film. But it looked like she was actually packing Amazon boxes. Like it was like in a very specific door pack, the inside packaging wrap. Yeah, the inside packaging wrap and the box are. I it it very seemed like a real thing to me. I also wondered, uh, God, how cold do you think it would have gotten in her van and some of those nights? Because you would have to be running the van like all night to keep heat on, right? I I think she just like bundled up a lot or like had some sort of generate because you can't run that twenty four seven or or that long because her her van would die out. Uh, quicker uh yeah, man in the desert up she was shown multiple times just like tossing and turning because it was too cold yeah i've god the desert temps can get real down there i bet you they can get into the negatives yeah and the negatives for sure totally and and she seemed to kind of travel seasonally you know to slightly warmer climates when it when she could yeah although they certainly like the freedom of the wilderness to some extent, you know, that's one area where it definitely made me appreciate having a house and warmth and heat and <laughs> food. And yeah, right. like that was probably my biggest like walk away from this. Cause a lot of the messaging, you know, on what it means to, you know, find a meaning in your life or whatever I've been exposed to before through various avenues you know, school, you know, motivational books. Like there was a guy who survived uh, the Holocaust who wrote a book where he was trying to interpret why different people like managed to make it through living in a concentration camp or not. And it was like finding something to hold on to. But the thing that I got the most out of it was like how a house can like represent having anything in the world you know i mean fern is the best example she has nothing anymore because her town doesn't exist she never had kids and her husband's dead her old job doesn't even exist anymore and then you contrast that with dave who you know he has this big family that welcome him back and they have multiple houses that are kind of out in their own corner of nature and it's like this is something physical and real that you know they own and that they can change and fix up themselves over the generations that they can then pass on you know like she was attached to her van because she put work into it she refused to sell it for scrap because you know she had just committed to it yeah she loved that van it was it was her home and she yeah that's where she loved being you know it was it was not an apologetic oh i have to live in my van she genuinely enjoyed it and we saw her working on it a whole lot so it really sold it you know like when she's you know using drills on the side of it and when she's poking at the rust like it really sells like the importance of having a physical thing that you have control over it seems like real estate always ends up on the upside I I don't want to disagree with you, but I have to say I do. It's strange that you encourage people to invest their whole life savings, go into debt, just to buy a house they can't afford. 
fern that's a rather limited look at what we do. Is it limited, George? I mean, we're not all in a position to just chuck everything and hit the road. Oh, you think that's what I've done, George? I chucked everything George, to hit the George. road? Is that what I did? All right. I'm sorry. You know, I think that um, what the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. I think fern's part of an American tradition. I think it's great. Yeah, it's like that. Touching on the American dream a little bit, where it's like owning a house is such a major deal, and for these nomads, the van or their vehicle is their house, and that's what you know protects them, and it's what they maintain. And I'm not even like a a property fetishizer or anything, you know. But the way that this sold it is like part of a stable family unit and being able to have a legacy and be comfortable with, you know, your old age and what you're passing on and being secure. I did come around a little bit like, you know what, it, it kind of makes a good statement. It's, it's proof that you built something and that you can change something. There's that one character, Patty, who said she wanted to build a, a, a small little settlement out of recycled material for her kids to give to. Yeah, that they could have. And I mean, what she described sounded fucking ugly and horrible as shit. But, but, <laughs> like the sentiment was there. <laughs> the sentiment was beautiful, but the, I, I, I have a hard time believing a bunch of plastic bottles and tires would make a very <laughs> make a good home. But. Yeah. My I don't want to shit on live there. No, they fucking won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you guys want to go ahead and take a crack at guessing what the budget and box office was for this? Uh, budget, I would guess thirty-two million. Maybe that's too high. I'm sorry, I, Bryce. You go. I want to guess again, but I want to hear your guess first. Why don't you guys <laughs> guess the uh, budget first? Well, this was this was clearly like a passion project for Frances McDormand because she like got the option for the script and chose the director for it. Chloe Zhao, who actually just it's a good thing we delayed this like 19 times because she just got Golden Globe for best director last night. And she's like, oh, yeah, first, I was going to mention that yeah. like first and- Asian woman to get Golden Globe, something like that. Pretty major. And the film itself had got one best picture at the Golden Globes. Yeah. So I would guess it'd be pretty like relatively low budget. Like I brought up Hell or High Water as a, as a comparison last time I was on. So I almost want to say it'd be like range of five million, maybe, if not less. I'll go high and I'll say... Seven million. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Estimated budget is between four and six million. Oh, I still lose. Yeah, that's I. Yeah, that sounds about right. And then the box office is only at one point one million. But I'm sure part of that was due to COVID. And I mean, I don't again, it's it's hard to tell because I don't know if this was partially in theaters and then the majority of it was on Hulu. Right. Well, because this movie released, it released last year to limited theaters, and I think it's bopped around a little bit between them. And then it won a shitload of like indie festival awards last year. Right. I'm sure they did the whole run too in theaters just so that it could qualify for Oscars and stuff. 
Exactly. And I, I have a hard time believing this movie is going to struggle because yeah, it has just been universally claimed and appraised everywhere. If anything, it's got legs. Like, I mean, compare it to other Francis McDormand movies, the early Coen Brothers movies or three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, like those grew over time. And this feels in a very similar vein to those. Well, out of 10 broken down nomad vans, how many (laughs) broken down nomad vans would you guys give it? And would you recommend it to, to other people to watch? You go first, AJ. All right. I uh, I had a hard time pegging exactly what I would rate this because uh, it is really good. Um, I think I'd put it in like the 8.8 range of broken down vans. Um, I think it is a melancholic examination of humanity and distinctly captures a broad yet specific lens of what feels like a very... American cultural moment. Yeah. So I definitely was going to say the same thing in terms of like pinning what you would even rate something like this. I mean, I already have a hard enough time like assessing just pure dramas like this. I don't know. I'm not a huge drama movie guy, but like it's immaculately made and there's a lot of stuff you can take from it. But for me, it never really like comes together from all these different things in the end. Um, Even though it has a lot of like beautiful messaging, I just don't really see the conclusion to the Fern character. I don't know if you don't have the experiences to empathize with any of the people in this movie. I don't know how you could like enjoy it. Because it's also very, very slow and deliberate. I think I would have to give this movie the first, for me, a 9 out of 10 broken down Nomad vehicles. Um, I mean, obviously, from what we talked about, I resonate with the ending quite a bit with loss and dealing with all that. But just the cinematography, the way the people in this are portrayed as real because they are real. And it's a, to me, a really good break, almost a very documentary esque film. It's like rides the line between realism and drama film. As far as the ending Bryce, I think I'd like to, in my mind, I'd like to think that <laughs> Fern, once we see her driving through the mountains or up to the mountains again, maybe she's decided she wants to go live with David again and his family after kind of, you know, coming to the conclusion she has to compartmentalize that part of her life and empire and her husband being gone, like always carry it with her, but realize it's not, it should be the thing that determines the rest of your life and what you should do and how you should always feel. Yeah. I, I thought the ending was very characteristic of the the rest of the film. I thought it was a pretty, pretty apropos ending for, for this. Yeah. I don't really know what I wanted from the ending. Um, cause obviously like we mentioned some way back during this, that like the typical Hollywood schmaltzy ending would just rob the movie of like everything, but like just a little more of a coming together would have sold it for me. Cause all these, you know, great moments and beautiful little touches, like 
I will say that the whole Bob monologue, I mean, I'm with you, Sam. That's like a 10 out of 10 moment in the movie. And it is gorgeous. But the way it doesn't all kind of have a final message or something, to, it doesn't have like a thing that just sticks with you and makes you questioning, I guess, aside from all the little character moments. Yeah, it's it's diffuse and broad in what, it, you know, it, it touched on so many different things that it, it I, I find it hard to believe that it would even try to leave us with a single parting message because it is so it covered so much territory. And that's why people can come away from this with a lot of different um, I don't want to say interpretations because it's not really, you know, cloaked in metaphor or anything, but different lessons and different different emphasis like, you know. Yeah, you can you know, economic lens or the loss lens. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways you can look at it. Bryce, a question we, we like to end part of the show with is what movie or show that you've enjoyed recently would you recommend to the audience? Well, instead of recommending the three hour long Tarkovsky Russian 70s movie Andrei Rublev about the life of a religious artist guy <laughs> that's like the slowest thing in the world but then has the most like cathartic ending of all time instead of that i'll recommend something a little more maybe not quite on the movie side but definitely a good watch um the channel contrapoints on youtube just had a great video about jk rowling and turfism and like the way that british media kind of propagates the that kind of bigotry and how someone with such a big platform can cause so much damage. Um, it's like over an hour long, but it's a really good video. Cool. I, I like it. That's a, that's a good rec. Well, Bryce, thank you for coming on the show. Sam, what movie are we watching next week? Hey, Jay. We will be watching the fantastic new, new-ish movie on Netflix called uh hold on to find it again god damn it <laughs> um i just had it now i can't find it take your time hold on i just gotta click on new and popular uh it's called i care a lot i care a lot yep okay all right it's got the little that. guy from game of thrones in it who i can't remember Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage is in it. Yep. <laughs> the little guy. The little, I, I, I'm sure that he would love to have his bio just say that. The little guy from Game of Thrones. I thought you were going to say like Sweet Bird or, or <laughs> Joffrey or something. No, Peter Dinklage. He's a great actor. As always, thank you everybody for listening to the Video Lab podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, be sure to email us at thevideolabpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find my review for this movie and other movies at my blog, asajthinks.com. And be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening. Until next time, see ya. Peace.